So now I would love to invite up Sarah. She's our children's ministry director and just an amazing woman. First service was so awesome. So just get ready to hear some awesome stories from her life. And she has some truth to let go today. So join me in welcoming Sarah. (laughs) All right. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Excited to be back. Um, We're going to look at a story in the book of Luke today. It's a fairly well-known story, but it's one that has a special significance in my life. Um, So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive right into the story. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity. I invite you to speak through me and share what you want to be shared this morning. Open our hearts and prepare them for what you have for us today. Amen. All right, our story's in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So when Van told me that I could preach today, the date jumped out at me right away. Today's August 6th. On August 6th, 1994, 23 years ago today, when I was a 12-year-old girl... I died and was brought back to life. It changed me. That day changed me. It changed my life. It changed my family. It changed my faith. It changed my family's faith. And if I'm honest, it's still changing me. And it's still changing my faith. So I'm going to tell you a shortened version of what happened that day. Because if I went into all the details and all the circumstances that God brought together, we'd be here for a really long time. So on that day, I was 12. I had been playing basketball, soccer, softball, cheerleading, dance. I had done 
every active thing a little girl could do, and we had no indication that anything was wrong for me, with me. And I went to my parents and I said, hey, I want to go for a run around the block. And they said, no, you have to stay in our yard. And I said, I'm 12. I've already been babysitting for people. Why can't I run around the block? They said, no, you need to stay in our yard. So I grumbled a little bit and I went outside and I started running back and forth across our front yard, feeling kind of ridiculous. And the last thing I remember was being on the far side of our yard. And I somehow got across the yard, up the hill that was our driveway, through the garage, opened the door, and fell dead at my mom's feet. So, you know the phrase, the devil is in the details? Well, that day, God was in the details. My brother was not home, so he did not have to witness it. My mom was recovering from food poisoning, so they weren't at a wedding where they were supposed to be. My dad had been a paramedic for 18 years, and he actually had taught CPR courses to other doctors and paramedics. And the ambulance for my neighborhood, for our township, was in my neighborhood, right around the corner, sitting idly by a dumpster fire. So my mom thought I was just being overly dramatic because, you know, I was 12. Um, And... (laughs) Then she realized that I fell flat on my face. And so she screams. My dad jumps off of his napping couch and comes around and he just stops. Because he'd been a paramedic for so long, he knew what dead people look like. And he just froze. And he says that God slapped him in the face and said, you know what to do, now do it. So he went into paramedic mode, came over and began to resuscitate me while my mom called 911. And I came back and then I died again. And I came back and then I died again, multiple times until the ambulance arrived and defibrillated me. You know, I didn't see the light that day and I didn't hear God's voice and I didn't get taken to heaven but I heard my father's voice. That's the only thing I remember is his voice calling my name, calling me back, telling me to breathe. And it was my father that day that fought valiantly for my life, just like Jairus in our scripture passage fought for his daughter's life. There's something about a love between a father and a daughter. And we see that with God too. So I spent 16 days in the hospital, most of that in the ICU And they really couldn't find anything wrong with me except a slight abnormality in my EKG. And then when they put me in the cath lab and tested my heart, my heart would slip into ventricular fibrillation, which is a fatal arrhythmia, very easily. Um, So I became the first pediatric defibrillator patient at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, which that's fun. You're the guinea pig. And they've learned lots of things um, through me. I'm now on my fourth defibrillator, I think, my fourth or fifth set of wires. And six years ago, I finally got an accurate diagnosis of what's happening with my heart. And that came through the diagnosis of my middle son, Noah, which then brought testing for our whole extended family. And in an ironic turn of events, my father actually has the same condition. Um, So we deal with things with humor in our family. Um, So he used to tell me, 
you know, I saved your life, so you need to go rake the leaves in the backyard. (laughs) And, you know, he'd use it against me. So now I can say, well, it's your fault that I died, so we're even. (laughs) So we also refer to August 6th as the day of the family room flop. Um, So on this day... The 23rd anniversary of my family room flop. You can see what drew me to this story in the Bible. And it just seemed timely that we look into it a little bit more and see what it has to share with us. So first of all, this story is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was obviously an important event in the ministry of Jesus to be recorded in three out of the four Gospels. And really, our passage contains two stories. The story of the 12-year-old girl is kind of like two pieces of bread that sandwich the story of the woman that had been sick for 12 years. And I don't believe in biblical coincidences. I think the context of a story and how it happens is very important. And so these two stories are woven together. And it could be that they just happened at the same time. Jesus was on the way to heal the little girl, and this woman comes up to him. But... I I just think it's important that they're told together. So in Luke 8, 40 to 42, we see that a crowd was gathered around Jesus. That's also how the story is told in Mark. But in Matthew 9, 18, it begins, while he was saying this. So we know that Jesus is in front of a huge crowd, and Matthew tells us that he was preaching. I don't think that the that the gospel accounts don't agree with each other, I don't think a huge crowd would be there if he weren't preaching. Okay, so he's in the midst of preaching to a huge crowd. I'm sure he's saying something amazing. And Jairus comes up and interrupts him. Okay, that takes some guts. Now, Jairus was a leader in the synagogue, which would have meant that he was wealthy and that he was a man of standing. Also would have meant that he was probably in the know about Jesus and who he was and what he was doing. Even though Jesus had almost celebrity-type status at this time, I mean, huge crowds would follow him around wherever he went and listen to him, Jairus still was willing to approach him. He approached him with humility, but he still didn't hesitate to approach him because of his desperation. And he falls to Jesus' feet, and he asks for help. Now, Jesus responds with empathy for him. Jesus responds with compassion. His heart was moved. Jesus' heart is to heal. Every time, all the time, Jesus' heart is to heal. Even when he's in the midst of preaching about the kingdom of God, his heart is to heal. He was willing to be interrupted to heal. That's how important healing is to the heart of Jesus. You know, he didn't respond in anger or frustration or irritation like I might have. He stops teaching and just goes with him. Am I willing to be interrupted by what the father is doing? Not even just am I willing to be interrupted from watching Netflix, or am I willing to be interrupted while I'm eating my lunch, but am I willing to be interrupted when I'm doing something good? Am I willing to be interrupted at work? Am I willing to be interrupted when I'm doing ministry to pay attention to what's in front of me and what the father is doing? We need to be aware of what the Father is doing. We have to be aware. Jesus was. Love was paramount for Jesus. He responded in compassion. So verse 43, Jesus goes. He goes with him. The huge crowd is like, wait, where are you going? So they follow him. They go with him. 
It's clearly a desperate need that he's responding to, and he's interrupted again. Okay, now that's twice in, I don't know, probably five minutes. If I were Jesus, I'd be frustrated. I mean, can't you let me work? I'm trying to do good things here. But again, he responds with compassion and empathy and love. He felt the power go out from him, and he wasn't willing to let this woman go unnoticed. This woman, this nameless woman, enters the scene fairly dramatically, even though she tried to be unobtrusive. We know that she suffered for 12 years. We know that she suffered from some sort of bleeding or hemorrhaging disorder. That's what the text says. What the text doesn't specify, because it would have just been known in that society, is that she was an outcast. If you have a bleeding disorder, you're considered unclean. People aren't allowed to touch you because then they become unclean and then they have to go and ritually purify themselves. So she would not have been in community. She would not have been in relationship. Okay, so she's an outcast. She, by religious rules of the day, she had no right to interrupt Jesus and she didn't dare do it, but she had desperation too. She was desperate to be healed. She had suffered alone for 12 years. It says in Luke that no one could heal her. In Matthew and Mark, we learn that she had spent all she had trying to get healing. Because it wasn't just healing, it was to be restored back into relationship with the community, to not be unclean anymore. So she's scorned, she's broken, she's broke, she has no money, she's alone. But she reached out in faith, and she says, if I can just touch a piece of his cloak, that's enough. And Jesus did not let her slide under the radar. This healing, this encounter that he had with the woman was very public. There's people all over the place. It says that the crowds were pressing against them. Have you ever been in a crowd like that? They're pressing against you. And he stopped. And he had her share with that huge crowd about what had happened. He gave her time and space in the midst of all of those people that would not touch her, that would not be in relationship with her, that would not be in community with her. He stopped and he validated her as a person, as a human, as a woman. He gave her space and time and he said, you know what? She's worthy. Let's listen to her. And then He didn't rebuke her for making him unclean by touching his cloak. He does the exact opposite. He calls her daughter. Now, this is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus calls a woman by this title. He calls her daughter. And the word actually evokes kind of this sense of sweetheart. So he looks at her and he is moved to compassion. And he says, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He loves her so much. He didn't discriminate in his healing. He was willing to help Jairus, who, as a ruler of the synagogue, he may have been one of the ones that were already plotting to kill him. He was willing to help Jairus. He's willing to help this woman who was unclean. I want to have that kind of heart. I want to see each person in our society as worthy of my time, my attention, my love, my ministry. If we're honest, we all have blind spots of how we see people. 
We all do. And some of us even hold on to those blind spots and we say, oh, well, the Bible says. Maybe it's homeless people that you don't see that don't get your time or attention. Maybe it's somebody of a different race. Maybe it's people who are gay. We all have blind spots and we don't see the humanity of some of the people that cross our paths. That's not how Jesus was. He didn't have any blind spots. He didn't discriminate in his healing or his love. So Jesus calls her daughter and then he tells her to go in peace. But in Greek, the word that's used for in isn't really in, it's more of into. So he tells her to go into peace. Okay? He knew her pain. He knew her suffering. He knew that it had been 12 long years of heartbreak and loneliness and pain. He knew that. But more than that, he knew the future that she had. He knew the hope and the peace and the life and the community that was waiting for her in the future. And so he tells her, go into peace. Guys, this was like a 30-second encounter with her. Reaches out, touches his cloak, share, tell everyone what happened. Daughter, go in peace. And he's off on the next mission. Guys, all it took was that brief encounter with Jesus to radically change her life. It took her from 12 years of pain and suffering into a life of peace. Guys, Jesus is that good. It takes that much time and he will change your life. He will just change your life. He will make it good. He's that good. You know, it says that the woman was trembling when she came to share her story. Some of you, like her, may not feel worthy of Jesus' time and attention and love. But you are. (laughs) You may want to just reach out and touch a piece of his cloak. And he's going to say, no, stop. This one's mine. She's good. She's worthy. Don't ever let feelings of unworthiness come between you and Jesus because he will validate you and call you worthy every single time. So we see in verse 49 that a messenger comes from Jairus' house and tells him that the little girl has died and don't bother the teacher anymore. These people had no frame of reference or worldview to believe that anything could change now that the girl was dead. This was an impossible situation in their mind. So Don't bother him. How many impossible situations do we come up against? We're surrounded by impossible. But Jesus steps right into it. He doesn't hesitate. He says, no, don't be afraid. Let's go. Okay, he knows. We need to believe that Jesus can do something new. We need to believe that he can do something that hasn't been done before. But beyond that, We need to believe that he wants to partner with us to do that. We need to step into the impossible with Jesus. We see that Jesus didn't have any doubts. He was like, stop talking about that. We're going to go. We're going to raise her from the dead. Jesus was fully expectant that the little girl would rise. Now that seems like a small thing, but it's really a big kingdom principle. Our level of expectation matters. When we are expectant, it changes the atmosphere. When we come into church or ministry time and we're kind of like, okay, here we go again. 
Sunday morning, let's see what happens. Okay, when we're kind of like bored or blah about Sunday morning, yeah, God moves. Yeah, he still does cool stuff, but it doesn't take much for him to impress us, right? Because our expectation is really low. But when we are expectant, we say, God, you are good. You are going to do huge things today. You're going to move mountains. We believe in you. Something happens. It shifts the atmosphere because you know what? God loves to impress us. He loves to knock our socks off. He loves to surprise us. He's, he's just good. So Jesus was expectant. And he goes to Jairus' house with that mindset of expectancy. Yet even though this crowd, this pressing crowd, follows him, he raises the little girl with only his three closest disciples and her parents. It was very private. He even counseled the parents not to share what had happened. Jesus healed in different ways. It wasn't a cookie-cutter ministry. He was always in tune to the heart and the mind of the Father and what he was doing at that moment. Okay, So with the woman, I feel like it was so public, partly because Jesus wanted to validate her. He wanted to show everyone that was there, she's worthy. She deserves space and time to speak. But with the little girl, it was more private. Because it wasn't time yet in his ministry for that to be well known. So he's, all, he's sensitive to the needs of the people that he's ministering to. And he's sensitive to the father's big picture and how the father is leading. So moving on to verse 53. It says that the people laugh at Jesus when he says that she's not dead. We're back to the mindset of all the people that were surrounding Jairus and surrounding Jesus. They go from mourning to laughing because it is just that absurd to them that she's not dead. They laugh at him. And to them, it is absurd. Like, she is dead. And to them, there's nothing to do. But Jesus just reaches out simply, (laughs) takes her by the hand, and very simply tells her, get up. And she rose. See, Jesus was expectant. He had proclaimed, Jairus, don't fear. He had proclaimed, she's not dead. She's asleep. And then those things open the door for the physical manifestation of the kingdom to come, for her to rise. His expectancy and his proclamation opened those doors. And she rose. Guys, we need to be expectant that God is going to move. It changes things in the atmosphere. And then we need to proclaim what we believe is going to happen. Our words have power. And then the physical demonstration of the kingdom can happen. So in verse 55, we see that this little girl, she wasn't just alive. She was well. She had been sick for who knows how long because she she was sick enough to die. She was laying in bed dying. Jesus raises her, not just back to being alive, in bed, sick. He raises her to wellness because he tells her parents, get her something to eat. If you've ever been sick for a while or dead, you don't want to eat. Like I didn't eat for, I don't know how long. Like you don't want to eat. You don't feel good. He didn't just raise her back to life. He raised her to wellness. He restored her body. Just like he did with the woman. He restored her. So looking at the big picture of these two stories, our lifestyle, our day-to-day life, we want it to look like Jesus's. 
right? I mean, that's the goal is for us to look more and more like Jesus and less and less like ourselves. So we have Jesus. He's preaching the kingdom. He's interrupted. He responds with love. He goes to continue to fill that need, is interrupted again, responds with love again, and then continues on his way and raises her from the dead. His life just flows from kingdom activity to kingdom activity to kingdom activity. They overlap, they interweave. It's just his life. It's just his day. That's what our days should look like. Just an overlapping, interwoven mess of kingdom activity. That's what our lives should be. So circling back around to my story, I want to share with you some of the recent revelations that God's given me about what happened to me on that day and also my response to what happened to me. So I heard Robbie Dawkins speak about a year and a half ago about when he raised somebody from the dead in England. Um, And he described feeling or seeing or sensing, I forget the word that he used, um, death hovering over this man. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. I had never thought about the fact that death was there when I died. And when you say it that way, I mean, it sounds really obvious, but I had just never thought about it. I had never put that together. And it really disturbed me. I mean, it's sick and twisted, to think of death in a 12-year-old girl. I mean, it's disturbing. Um, And if I'm honest, I went into a tailspin for a few days. And I really didn't know which way was up. And it just really upset me. I mean, I know John 10.10 is a verse that I know, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I know that verse. So I don't know why it shocked me so much, but it did. So I finally came into this room, this room, one day during work and all the lights were off and I laid down on the floor and I cried. I said, God, where were you? Where were you? What happened? You were supposed to be there. And you guys, he's so gentle with us, even when we're a mess. He very, very gently showed me. And he showed me my old family room. And he showed me my parents that were in a panic. And he showed me, me, lying there on the floor in this really ugly purple spotted leotard that I chose to wear that day. (laughs) He showed me all of that. And Jesus was there. He was kneeling beside me. He was there. He was with me. He didn't leave me. He was there. And you know what? He was there in the fact that the ambulance was around the corner. And he was there for 18 years that my dad learned CPR really, really well. And he was there in my mom's food poisoning. (laughs) You know, but he was there in all of those circumstances that came together so that I could live. Jesus was there. Here's the thing. God is good. Jesus is good. I used to say that God gave me this heart condition so that I could share my testimony about how faithful God is. And you know what? This heart condition has opened lots of doors for me to share about God's faithfulness. 
Medtronic, the company that makes my device, I've gone up there probably four times to Minneapolis, and I've spoken via video conference to all of their employees globally. It, it has opened a lot of doors for me. But here's what I've learned. This heart condition is not from God. A good God does not give evil things to his kids. That goes beyond all reason. It goes beyond anything that is logical. My dad would not give something evil to me. The same goes for my heavenly father. This is not from him. This is from Satan. Satan's favorite tactic, one of his favorite tactics, is to blame his evil things on God. And I bought it. For 20 years, I bought it. And I said, oh, God gave me this. No, no more. (laughs) God is good. The second part of John 10, 10 is that Jesus comes that we might have life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes that we might have life. You know, we believe in a redemptive God. So he took what Satan meant to harm me, and he has redeemed it time and time and time again. And he's going to continue to redeem it because that's what he does. In Romans 8.28, it says that we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Jesus was there with me. Jesus made sure all the details were right for that day. God paved the way for me to share my testimony multiple times. And you know what? He's going to continue to redeem it. 23 years later to the day, God is redeeming that which Satan meant to harm me. I will not go down easily. (laughs) I will continue to proclaim the goodness of the Father, the amazingness of Jesus. You know, my parents had a sense that first week that God saved me for something. And he did. He saved me to use me. And he saved me to redeem my story. But you know what? He wants to save you too. And he wants to redeem the hard things in your life too. Because that's just who he is. He wants to change your worldview. He wants to change your mindset. He wants you to step into the impossible. He wants you to believe his truth that he is good. He is not evil. And he doesn't want you to believe Satan's lie that he gives good things or evil things to his kids. So God gave me a promise a couple years ago. I was taking School of Kingdom Ministry, and they were going to demonstrate healing prayer. And so I volunteered to go up on the stage and let them pray for me to demonstrate how healing prayer should look. They prayed for me for probably 20 or 30 minutes, and I was just a snotty, crying mess. So I wasn't healed physically that night, But that was the night that I received a lot of emotional and mental healing. That was the night that it really sunk in that God is good. And then one of the students, Stephanie Grant, she got a picture. And so she said, you know, Sarah, I see you as a little girl sitting in a field of strawberries. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, and she said, and you're crying. And I said, well... When I was a little girl, about six, strawberries were my favorite food, and I developed an allergy to them, and I couldn't eat them. And so sitting in a field of strawberries crying as a little girl, that makes a lot of sense. But when I was a teenager, 
I got adventurous one day and decided to try one, and I was fine. And the doctor said that sometimes you can outgrow that kind of an allergy. So I shared that with Stephanie because, you see, sometimes when you get a prophetic picture for someone, it's really clear, and you can just say, this is what it means. And sometimes you have to say, like, what does this mean to you? And have the person respond, and then it's kind of like a give and take, and it becomes clearer what the father is, is actually saying. And so Stephanie said, you know what? I think that you're going to outgrow your heart condition. So I hold on to that. I hold on to that. Yeah. (laughs) I see that as a prophetic picture of my healing. It will come when it's the right time, when it's the right season. The redemption will come and I will be healed completely. Just like that woman and just like that little girl, I will be healed completely and restored to wellness. I'm expectant for that. I want you to be expectant today. I'm proclaiming that I think today is the day that some of you are going to be healed of chronic illness. Maybe you fought it for 12 years like that woman. Maybe you fought it for 23 years. Maybe it's been 12 months or 12 days. Jesus's heart is to heal every time, all the time. God is good. He is redemptive. May that truth penetrate your life today. So Father, thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that you are good. You are redemptive and that you are redeeming every part of our stories. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you for great worship. Did I do that right? All right. Had a couple words of knowledge for today. Healing, specifically of spinal injuries, tumors, foot pain, restoration of hand mobility, knee pain and stiffness, blurring vision, and uh, freedom specifically for depression from the orphan spirit, and from the lie that God can't use you. Okay, So I really do think that there's freedom and healing today for chronic illness and chronic conditions. Can we bring the lights up like just a little? I can't really see anybody. Um, <laughs> I need to see. So if you have a chronic illness or a chronic condition, would you just put your hand, like if it's your heart, put your hand over your heart. If it's like your pancreas, I don't really know where that is. You probably do. Um, Put your hand there. And if you see someone around you kind of doing that, reach out and put a hand on them. So Holy Spirit, we invite your presence. Come invade this room with your freedom and your grace. You silence the boast of the grave. That is what the cross did. We claim that victory today and we claim healing. We claim the healing that that woman had after her 12-year chronic illness. We claim that healing because, Jesus, your heart is to heal all the time. Every time, your heart is to heal. So we speak to any pain, any inflammation in the body, any tumors, anything that is not working. We claim restoration. We claim redemption. 
If you're feeling anything or if you've experienced any healing, would you raise a hand so we can tell? Spirit, we want you to come. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence. Yep, it's starting. Thank you. Thank you for your healing. We ask for more. Yep, more over here. like to have more prayer come on up here to the front if you would like prayer for feelings of unworthiness like if you like the woman don't feel like you're worthy we'd like to pray for you about that and then any chronic illness come on up and we'll pray some more so thank you god for a great morning thank you for your word and your power and your love in jesus name amen